guys. So part of what God is trying to do is, as he writes the nations on our hearts is for us to get to know deeply the people that are coming to us. Because God is going to have all of us around his throne in heaven one day worshiping the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so similarly, as I say this, I, I want you to know that as we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we're very aware that it has been a cross-cultural study. You do not open the Bible ever without entering into a cross-cultural study with its layers like an onion. We've even seen just recently in our study of the Gospel of Mark how, how there's different layers to the understanding that Mark is interpreting for us to understand Jesus and his kingdom. He has said recently in Mark chapter 7 and 8 as we've looked at it, he has shown us that even as Jesus was healing a blind man, he really was all about healing the spiritual blindness of the 12 apostles. We've seen that. These are layers to the gospel of Mark that a cursory reading, a superficial reading will not give us. And God takes us deeper if we'll, if we'll meditate, if we'll go there with him. Last week we looked at a key turning point in the gospel of Mark when we read about Jesus asking the supreme question, which is up here on our banner, when he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that supreme question required a supreme answer. And Peter came up with it and he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a major turning point You'd think that such a stellar answer by Peter would, would result in, in such a, a getting it by Peter. And yet the very next statement we see, he didn't get it fully. He saw it only partially, a vision of Jesus. Today we begin our second half of the book of Mark. And it's interesting that Mark begins with each of the halves with a significant experience in the life of Jesus. The first half of the Gospel of Mark is, is marked by his baptism, chapter 1, verse 9. The baptism of Jesus. And Christ comes out of the water being baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And, and it says in the Scriptures that the voice from heaven, God the Father said, This is my Son. You are my Son. With you I am well pleased. And today we begin our second half of the Gospel of Mark, which also begins with a significant experience in the life of Jesus. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. The first half is marked by the baptism. The second stage is marked by a mountaintop experience. The first one is down in the river. The second one is up on a mountain. At the end of the first half of the, the Gospel of Mark, the disciples have only a partial view of the glory of Jesus. At the beginning of the second half, they are given an experience that will fast forward them in their spiritual understanding of who Jesus is. And so, turn to that with me now into Mark chapter 9. And let's take a look at this passage. Mark chapter 9. And um, you'll notice that verse 1 begins with the portion of Jesus' statement that is said six days earlier. And he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And I believe that sometimes the chapter divisions are not right at all because they were added later by men. 
But in this case, I think it's not a bad chapter division because thematically, that verse, that last statement of Jesus six days earlier than the Mount of Transfiguration actually fits with what is happening. Indeed, some did not taste death, the three disciples, before they did actually see the power and glory of Jesus Christ on that mountain. So would you uh, take your Bibles and would you stand with me now? And let's take a look at Mark chapter 9 and begin with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could, could uh, bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for each, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a, a voice came from the cloud This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Jesus takes his three closest disciples... And he ascends to a mountain, a high mountain, it says. You know, it's incredible that mountains have a significance in the Bible uh, that are, are, are undeniably important. In fact, I would say that bodies of water and mountains have significance in the Bible. Places like the Red Sea, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee are a backdrop to so much significance in salvation history. But also we see that, and you can notice this in your insert and your bulletin, that green piece of paper, you can see that I list there are various mountains that have had significance in the spiritual life of many of God's people throughout history. For example, Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham is called to go and to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Incredible significance there. In Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up the mountain on behalf of God's people and he mediates the old covenant with God the Father. And in Carmel, the Mount Carmel, the 1 Kings 18 talks about Elijah, who, who is in that moment challenging all the evil prophets of Baal with the power of the holy God. And the very next chapter, when he runs and flees for his life to Mount Horeb, where there he meets God in the gentle whisper of the wind. And, and then there's, of course, Zion, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem even today stands. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, that David establishes Jerusalem, the holy city of David, on the Mount Zion and the significance of that place. And today we look at this Mount of Transfiguration, 
which many believe is Mount Hermon. I mentioned last week that beginning in Mark chapter 8, Jesus slows the pace of ministry down to a, a walking pace, starting in verse 27. Uh, they've, been, they've been going sailing across the Sea of Galilee. It's been hurrying. There's been so much ministry going on. But starting in chapter 8, we see Jesus slow it down, no longer crossing the Sea of Galilee, no longer here and there and everywhere. But now they're walking everywhere they go. And we see that also where Jesus leads them is significant as much as how he leads them. When he calls upon them to make this incredible bold statement, the supreme question, he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, the borderlands between the, the pagan territory where there were shrines and temples to false gods and the, the Jewish territory. And there he asked them the supreme question. He, there he asked them in the midst of this pagan society, declare your faith in the Lordship of Christ, just as he does for us today. And when he wants to get into a deeper lesson, what does he do? takes them up a mountain takes them up a mountain and so this trek also would have been a slow pace you don't run up the mountain do you many people think that this was Mount Hermon 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi at an altitude of 9,000 feet was the peak of Mount Hermon it was very easy for me to make a, a contextualize that because in Cochabamba Bolivia where we lived for seven years Cochabamba was at 8,600 feet above sea level, and the mountains all around Cochabamba were around the 9,000 mark, even a little higher. And when we had rain in Cochabamba, we looked up on the peaks, and it was snow caps around the mountains. And so there on that place, Jesus climbs up there with three disciples. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone fast. That's a bit of a peak. And so what is the lesson except that when God wants to teach us a deeper lesson, when he wants us to give us a further revelation of who he is, he needs to slow us down because it requires reflection. And so we need to reflect on the events of our lives. I honestly say, I must say, I was thinking of this yesterday, it feels strange to be preaching about this on the plains of Manitoba. To the plains people because we don't have mountains around here to, to think of it as. And yet, we're, I obviously, we're speaking metaphorically. We're talking about a close and intimate encounter with God in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about experiences of individual believers where we draw nearer to Christ, going up the mountain and seeing His glory revealed, even as these three apostles had in this experience. We're talking about unforgettable, landmark, turning point times in our walk with God. Do you have them? I have them. I've had a few of them I can think of. Just a, two or three of them that are significant in all of my life that I could point to. Mountaintop experiences where I have been led by the hand with Jesus into an experience that has made me see more of His glory when things that are normally harder to do are not hard to do, like getting up at five in the morning for prayer, weeks on end, I've had that. Haven't had that for a long time. I've had that. Where prayer is sweet and the glory of Jesus is real. Have you had that? We can't live there. 
We can't live on the mountain. At that altitude, you cannot live. Your spiritual existence cannot be sustained. You'll only learn so far and then you will be stunted as a Christian if God were let you to stay there. But praise God that His mercy leads us on occasion up the mountains to reveal more of His glory. You know the story, this incredible classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And there's a place in the story where Pilgrim, who is the Christian, walking along, is, is encouraging his brothers to not give up. He's encouraging them because they, they have actually lost hope that they'll ever, ever, ever find the celestial city. They even come to the point where one of them says they don't even believe that the celestial city exists. And here's what Pilgrim says to encourage him. He says, did we not see it from the top of Mount Clear? Did we not see it from the top of Mount Clear? You see, the reason why God gives us mountains is because in those intimate encounters with our Savior, things become clear like never before. Life can be reorganized and prioritized to fit kingdom values. We need mountain experiences in our Christian pilgrimage because, friends, it won't be long before you're in the valley of despair. It won't be long before you're in the slough of despond. And you need to remember the faithfulness of God on the mountain that you've had, where Jesus led you there to show you more of his glory. You need that. If you've never had that, take Jesus by the hand and say, please, show me more of your glory. You may be saying this morning, I don't feel that joy anymore. I used to feel it. I don't have that closeness I once had. My steps are not as sure today. My vision is not as clear. My hands are not as steady. I'm shaky. I lack the settled peace I once knew. I used to sing the old hymn, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, no other can ever know. I used to know that song. I used to sing that song. That used to be my experience. It isn't anymore. Ask the Lord to give you that again, that closeness. Friends, God uses mountains in the Bible to define close encounters with so many of his followers because mountains don't move. Mountains are places of stability, refuge, shelter, safety. Mountains stay the same, though the valleys below them might be deluged with floods and damaged by drought and hit with hurricanes. Mountains stay the same. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He does not slumber nor sleep. Where is the psalmist when he's writing this? He's in the valley because he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. He's not living on the hills. He's in the valley, but he remembers the hills. He knows the security of God. Have you got something to recall? Have you got a reference point? Do you know the faithfulness of God, though you might be in the valley today? 
Psalm 30, David is writing, and he says, When I felt secure, I said, I'll never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up a high mountain all alone. He wants this to be a landmark moment for them. He wants this to be a, a kairos time in their lives. So let's talk about that key word that's in this passage. It's called metamorphosis. It leads us to our second point this morning. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 29, which is Luke's account of the same event, we read that Jesus is in prayer when he is transfigured, when he is metamorphosized ahead of the apostles. You'll notice from the outline in your bulletin that I say four things about this experience. First of all, it was accompanied by the Shekinah glory, which is the glory of God that was seen in the temple in the Old Testament. Secondly, it was attended by Moses and Elijah, a reincarnation or apparition of Moses and Elijah. Thirdly, it is attested to by the apostles. And then finally, it is affirmed or approved or announced by God the Father. Luke records that Jesus is praying and in the middle of this time of prayer, the Shekinah glory of God begins to radiate out from the Son of God, so much so that his, his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than any bleach could ever make them. Matthew's account tells us that his face was shining like the sun. Luke's account says that his clothes were like flashes of lightning. You can imagine how terrified Peter, James, and John are at this. Elijah and Moses appear with him in glorious splendor. These two ancients. Many commentaries believe that, that the reason it's Elijah and Moses is because Moses sums up all of the law and Elijah all of the prophets. And both are present to give their affirmation to this being the Son of God. And it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, that the three of them, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, are talking about Jesus' departure. Isn't that incredible? Before Christ is going to go to the cross, God sends him this experience and Moses and Elijah to talk about his death, his impending death. And we don't have time to dig into this more deeply, but, but this passage, this experience is a picture of what's happened in Exodus 19, 24, 32, 34, all these passages in Exodus where several times Moses goes up the mountain and there's this deep connection between Moses and Jesus in this text. It's called typology. Typology is the study of God's prior redemptive acts in Scripture that are helping us to interpret other in redemptive acts. And so the redemptive act of God through Moses delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt and all of the giving of the law and so on is, is a picture of Jesus and his redemption which was to come. And so there's so many points of similarity that this typology brings us. For example, just as Moses took some of the elders up the mountain, Jesus takes three of his disciples. 
Just as Moses' face shone so that he had to put a veil over his face when he came down the mountain, Jesus' face was like the sun. Just as a cloud enveloped Moses, a cloud envelops Jesus as he prays. Just as God's voice speaks to, to Moses from the cloud, God's voice speaks to Jesus from the cloud. Just as those who witnessed Moses were terrified, so also those who witnessed Jesus were terrified. In Mark chapter 9, the voice of God is heard audibly. This time, it's not for the sake of Jesus alone. Now the tense of the verbs change, and now it's saying to those that are witnessing it, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here is God the Father saying in an affirmative way to every, everything that it represents the law of God, Moses, everything that represents the prophets of God, Elijah, everything that represents the New Testament church, the apostles. He's saying to this powerhouse, you get on your knees and you listen to this man. He is my son. The supremacy of Jesus is dripping from this text. And so when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he has authority to say, you have heard that Moses said this, but I say to you this. And so we see this incredible display of the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit. We see the announcement from God the Father. Many years later, Peter is reflecting. Peter's writing his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he lived on that experience for so long. Can you imagine all the dark times that Peter went through? He lived off of that mountaintop experience. And later on, years later on, he writes about it. It's still fresh in his memory. And he says, he says in chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where we, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. <laughs> He's still living off of this. It's fueling him. The word that's used in verse 2 for transfigured is the Greek word metamorphosis. It means to be changed, to be transformed, but it, it is such a deep transformation that it's actually a transformation of essence. And so geologists use this word. For example, geologists use it to describe rocks whose structure is so completely altered that their original form is no longer seen, and these are now called metamorphic rocks. And Biologists use it to describe changes in the natural world by which creatures adapt to a new environment, the way that a cocoon becomes a butterfly, an altogether new creature, or a tadpole becomes a frog, an altogether different creature. These are metamorphoses. Linguists speak of process known as transformational grammar, whereby meanings in the deep structure of a language are transformed into words found in the surface structure of a sentence. Metamorphosis. And this is the word that is used of Jesus in this passage and also of the believer in passages that Paul will refer to. Now, first of all, what does it mean to say that Jesus was metamorphosized? It means that Christ's essential inner excellence 
and the radiance of his glory shone out so much that it could not be contained by his physical body any longer, robed in flesh the Godhead see, so that the intrinsic glory of his very being and his essence had to be displayed in the very body and the clothing of Jesus. It's an incredible concept. You must get the difference between the way it's used of Jesus and the way it's used of us. When it's used of Jesus, it is a physical, a physical transfiguration because Jesus did not need to be changed in any way. He is, in fact, the changeless one. But the glory of who he is, the, the mediated version of God that everybody saw walking around on earth for 33 years, no longer was mediated, and the glory shone forth, and he was transfigured, and the apostles were consumed with it. And we're going to see in a moment that when it talks this word about us, when we are transformed by the glory, he's talking about our character, our morality, because that has to be changed in our essence. So let's move on to the third point of our, of our text. And, and what does it mean then when we speak of spiritual transformation in our lives? How does this word ever get used on Jesus and then on us as well? Well, the Apostle Paul refers to this change described. He refers to it, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. And... Um, It's very interesting, in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes that Jesus, who was in very nature, the word is metamorphe, the word is morphe there, Jesus, who is in very nature, essence, God, became in the appearance, and that word is schema, which is an outward showing, an outward conformity. So in, in, in Morphe, in essence, he's God. In schema, in outward conformity, he appears like a man on earth. That's the way Paul plays with these two words. He plays with them regarding Jesus in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he plays with the two words again. He says this, Do not, believer, do not conform schema. Do not conform outwardly to the pattern of this world around you but instead be transformed, morphe, metamorphe, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the the thing that Jesus wants to do in our, our lives is not some kind of a schematic external conformity, behavior modification, external conformity kind of thing. It is a real, real transformation of essence of who you are. That's the work that God wants to do in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul uses the word again. He says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. Here this passage teaches us that the key to our transformation, our growth, our sanctification into Christ-likeness, Our maturity as believers, the key is beholding. If we have any responsibility at all, it is that we behold the Lord. Because as we behold, He transforms. As Moses beheld the Lord on the mountain, His face shone. As we behold, God changes us. He imprints on us the, the very character of Jesus Christ. 
Just recently, Pat and I saw the movie Pride and Prejudice, the book by Jane Austen. And in the book, not the movie, but in the book, the two eldest sisters of the Bennett family, who are best of friends, are like night and day. Elizabeth is a cynical, negative, critical person. And Jane is the epitome of of beauty in terms of character, optimistic, so much so naively so. Nothing does she think bad of anyone, and if anyone wrongs her, she instinctively forgives Elizabeth and Jane. And there is a scene in the book when Jane and Elizabeth are celebrating Jane's engagement to be married. And here's how the conversation goes. Jane says this, I am simply the most fortunate creature that ever existed. Oh, Lizzie, why am I thus singled out from my family and blessed above all of them? If I could but see you happy, my sister, if there were such another man for you. And Jane respond, or Elizabeth responds, If you were to give me 40 such men, I could never be so happy as you. Here's the key. For until I have your disposition and your goodness, I can never have your happiness. You see, there's a spiritual truth there that she understood that happiness and growth in whatever kind of maturity is not appendages added unto the Christian as we work on ourselves, but rather it is the very attitude, the very spirit, the very character of Jesus Christ, His disposition stamped upon you by the Holy Spirit, the the living God, His Spirit on you. From inwardly, His essence so metamorphosizing you that you begin now to have different affections, different desires, and it's all from God, the source. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.5, let this disposition be in you. Let this attitude be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, that's what we all need. We all need to enter into this process of being changed, transformed, given the essence of Jesus Christ. As we conclude this morning, how does that happen? Well, I want to say it again. Happens when you behold. As you behold Him, He transforms you. We grow in the image of that which we love. We grow in the image of those things we love. If you give your heart over to other things, you'll grow in that. And if you give your heart over to Jesus, you'll grow in his image. And I suggest three things this morning where I believe the beholding is essential. First of all, I want to say that the first way that you you can be transformed is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. This, This scripture, the Bible, this is God's word. And, and you get your mind fed with all kinds of stuff all week long, but if you will let this book be your spiritual food daily and have your mind renewed, if you behold in this book the glory of Christ, as you behold him here, he will transform you. Secondly, we notice in Luke 9 that it was during the time that Jesus was praying when he was transfigured. 
And when you and I are beholding Christ in prayer, we can be transformed. Not just saying prayers, not just kind of going through some kind of robotic thing, but, but taking the time to try and behold the Lord in prayer and laying your sincere requests out before him. And then thirdly, I want to suggest that even as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, I believe that you behold the Lord in the least of these brethren of mine, as Jesus said. As you start to, to serve the Lord as he served when he was living on this earth, you will be transformed. For you will find in that service, you will behold the Lord. And you can be transformed. So would you stand with me as we conclude this morning? Would you permit me to uh, pray for, for us all as we respond to this message this morning? Father, Lord God, I thank you for what you've spoken to us today. I know that, that, that we've said a lot today, and I've talked about a lot, but Holy Spirit of God, I know that you're the one that's able to sustain things for us. You're the one that's able to apply things for us. And I pray that we would not leave this room without clarifying before you what it is that you've spoken to us personally. Lord God, we think about this whole need for us to, to see your glory in the intimacy of encounters with you, mountaintop experiences, Lord. It doesn't need to have have to happen at, at a retreat or some kind of special venue or occasion. It can happen in the every days of life. It can happen even in times of sorrow and difficulty where we can have the mountaintop experience with you and somehow we can see more of you, your glory. Lord, I would ask that for everyone in this room. I would ask it again for me. Show me your glory. Because I believe that as we behold your glory, we will be changed by your glory. So Father, please meet us. Make us a praying people. Make us more and more people of your word. Make us servants of Christ Jesus to behold you more and more. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you've begun, that you're doing in each one of our lives. And uh, Lord, we just give you reign here. We give you lordship. We give you supremacy. You're the Lord of this place. So please come and have your way with us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. People of God, go in peace and have a blessed day. And if you're uh, the college and career age group, please come down right now to the downstairs. Give us five minutes to set up uh, as the children are gathered. But please come down and meet us for lunch. Amen. <laughs>